All right, Thomas. How you doing? I was gonna do like an intro. You don't want an intro? Oh, sorry. Well, do an intro. Don't let, don't let me get in your way. It's your show. I'm just here. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so I'm I'm likening tonight's show to uh, the Michael Jordan 1997 flu game for me. <laughs> really? Yeah. I'm I'm definitely playing sick, but I'm pushing through. I'm persevering. I am persisting. And we're going to do a great show, don't you think? But I well, deserve don't, accolades don't for doing the show sick. How sick are you? Like, are you, uh, do you have like a trash can beside you ready to, to puke? No, it's, it's not like, it's not that kind of sick. Um, yeah, it's just like pressure stuff in my head. I can barely like hear in, in my headphones. Um, so yeah. And I don't, you know, I'm sure that I sound horrible on the show as well so yeah but anyway it, it's definitely bad the same as you always do to be honest. that's good that's good so i always sound horrible is what you're saying <laughs> no but you know all right so what what is it hmm as you get older do you do you feel like you you get sick more or less often so i don't get sick in this way very often like nobody wants to hear all this stuff, but um, I get like sinus stuff a lot. But other than that, I don't really get sick, like with the flu or colds, or I have to like stay home or anything like that. Um, but I've always this is all people care about, dude. Like the older you get, like we <laughs> all they want to know about is like you know, <laughs> let's talk about the color of your mucus. Yes, that's, that's, that's really that's, productive that's cough you, today. It was great. That is how you become a great, great right. podcast. So, but I've always been rather. Um, Have you listened to NPR? It's all about mucus. It's color. all about mucus. Yeah, yeah. I've always been rather injury prone. That's true. So, you you are like the most injury prone person I've ever met. Right. So I, I'm like constantly getting injured doing things. You know, a few years ago I was playing softball and I was like, oh, it'd you know, be good. I played baseball a lot growing up and traveled playing, and you know, this will be a lot of fun. I'll be good and. I don't know, halfway through the season, I broke my ankle. And I was like, okay, I'm retiring from softball. <laughs> and then... And then you broke your back. And then that summer, I had to have back surgery. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm kind of... Um, I'm kind of injury prone. So... But I'm not, like, sickly. I don't know if that makes sense. In my head, those are two different things. Yeah. Yeah, they are. I mean, you, yeah, you're not a sickly person. But you, you do get hurt. A whole lot right so everybody's like oh wait till you, you know my dad's always like well, wait till you get my age okay yeah so he's older than me but i'm also kind of like well i mean i'm 31 but i think my body is like 51 or 61 now you're only 31 am i oh no i'm 32 now yeah i just had a birthday yeah yeah so I'm, I'm i'm 32 now so yeah i'm like way i'm way up there i mean i'm nowhere People. near you but I'm only, what am I, 38 now? You people with your, your youth and vigor, you'll never know the the uh, the, 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 the pleasures of a, of a monkey knife fight. Well, there's a Simpsons episode about that. Anyway, so, okay, you're 31. 32. And 32. And your whole body's falling apart. Yeah. But it has um, been, like, since I was, like, 15. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's because of your facial hair, and then you, you cut your hair. All my virility is in my facial hair, <laughs> and it left the rest of my body. You're like a Viking. So, 
what what how do you think it's going to be when you're 62 or, or 72 like you know baby boomers grew up in a world where things were pretty static you know like nothing's going to really change as far as biological technology or whatever but i mean can you imagine i mean so i'm 38 so when i'm 68 if i make it that far like 30 years from now in 2047 like that sounds really futuristic and i'm, I'm imagining robocop slash i'm going to upload my consciousness to the cloud right yeah and but you've got another happen. like six seven eight years ahead of me right yeah, yeah. So as far as like my personal health is concerned, I always think, and my hope is I get to a point and kind of plateau, that I don't just get progressively worse. Um, but that's not generally how it works. But that, I'm still holding out hope that I will not just my body will not just continue to fall apart. But you know, I, I think so. Yeah, we have this. Um, oh, I can't think of the name of the law right now, but I'm sure you remember it. But with technology, kind of how quickly it um, progresses. Moore's law. Yeah, Moore's law. So um, yeah, but that's not really right. And your body will continue to fall apart. Trust right, me. Right. Yeah. No, my body will. But I'm. But like the tech, right? And particularly in the healthcare industry and the tech, and how is that going to affect us? And what are we going to have? Um, I tend to think that we we overstate that a lot, right? So I mean, look at the, the Jetsons is obviously a classic example of what we thought the world was going to be like in 2000, and not we, but you know, some people. Um, I, I think we're going to have uh, some pretty incredible things. I'm personally very excited about um, driverless cars. Yeah. So, you know, I think we're going to have things like that. We're going to have, obviously, a lot more telemedicine. Um, and, you know, our healthcare is going, well, our technology related to our healthcare is going to improve. I don't, I can only hope that our national healthcare system improves. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I don't, but it's not going to be, you know, I think, yeah, we think like, oh, 30 years down the road, it's going to be this crazy thing. But you know, think 30 years ago, like how much has actually changed? I mean, a lot, but it's also not this super futuristic world that we're living in now. Or maybe it is. Yeah, maybe but, with your AirPods, it is. It, it is. is. It, it really kind of is. Think about it. So I grew up in Mullen, South Carolina, which was like one of the leading tobacco markets in, in North America in the 70s and 80s. And then everything moved to Thailand because we realized that smoking was bad for you. And our, our little town of 10,000 people went down to like 5,000 people. And it was a, you know, pretty like terrible thing for that community. Um, but a lot of, a lot of that had to do with just the, the science and the realization that, hey, wait, smoking's bad for you. And we finally kind of agreed to that as a, as a culture and then we moved on and now, you know, yeah, some hipster smoke and some people, you know, young people smoke because they're trying to bring it back. But for the most part, we went from being kind of a, a, a society and a culture where smoking was, you know, everywhere and, and to realizing like, yeah, we, we shouldn't do that. You know, like I, I think, yes, you know, those types of changes can happen slowly, but they can also happen really rapidly. And, and I think, so I'm sitting here holding this little uh, Mentos, side, no, not, not even Mentos, I don't even know, like a Tic Tac, smaller than, smaller than a, a Tic Tac container. Anyway, it's got two little earbuds in it, and these are the Apple AirPods, and I'm playing with these things that I just got in the mail today, and these are the future. 
like you pop these in your ear and you're talking to Siri and it's fantastic because this is what computing is going to be. Um, you know, this idea of, of us having a, a QWERTY keyboard with a keyboard laid out where you have to like manually type in things is so ancient, you know, and, and like my kids and definitely my grandkids are going to look back if we make it that long, depending on Trump, right. are going to look back on this period of, of humanity and be like, wow, you know, you, you, you people were monsters with your, uh, with your, you know, ASDF keyboards. Um, I don't know. I, I think we're, uh, I think we're in for some, some interesting next few years there in, in terms of, you know, like you're talking about, you know, automated cars and that kind of thing. We're already seeing that. I mean, you know, I work with American farmers and right. we're seeing that so much with American farmers in terms of like self-driving tractors, because that's much more efficient than a human driving a tractor um, in terms of seed delivery and, and just field coverage and, and, let alone harvesting at, at, you know, harvest time. But, um, yeah, I mean, uh, I think things are going to change really rapidly here in the next 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah. And what, well, you know, so the next natural question, right. Or that I'd want to take to, maybe it's not natural, but the next place I'd want to go with that is, um, this conversation that some people have been having over the past few years about a UBI, right. A universal basic income and kind of a, a world, uh, without work, so to speak. And I don't really think we're going to get there completely, but it's an interesting concept to think about. Um, you know, I don't think that automation, yes, it's going to take a lot of jobs. It already has taken a lot of jobs and it's going to continue to take more. But, um, you know, I don't think it's this horrible thing. I think it can make our lives better, but I think it will also force us to think about, um, our identities as individuals and our identity as a nation that isn't so tied to, uh, you know, our work, where we go for our gainful employment on a daily basis. Well, I mean, I I think that's where things are going, where the idea of a 40-hour work week where, you know, you, you go to a place and you have a job and then you come home and you, you know, change into your Mr. Rogers cardigan. Yep, like, that, that's night. so antiquated. Um, and, and we're getting there, but it, it's just kind of a societal shift away from that. Yeah. It seems to me like once you, like if you do, I don't expect us to do it, but say we did get to a true UBI, um, or, or something like that, right. Then it actually frees up, uh, people to, to take more risks, right. It actually frees up entrepreneurship. It frees up, uh, creativity, right. And allows all of, allows people, gives them the time and the, the safety uh, to actually explore these things and, and pursue these things that they're not able to now because they have to spend 40 hours a week sitting in a chair, staring at a screen. Right, and, and that's what we view as productivity. You know, instead of saying like, right. well, what did you accomplish this week or, or what can you do for this company or that company? It's, it's well, how long were you at work? And that's completely changed in, in places where productivity really matters and money's really being made. But in places where, you know, we're, we're playing the, the game of, of work or the game of life, right. if you will, yeah. um, you know, that that's still the, the, the paradigm as it is. I think. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. I just, you know, 
I think we need to move past it. I'm not sure. And I think the way we do it is it will be by necessity, right? It's not going to be because we all come together and collectively decide, yeah, that would be great. We should change our thinking on this. Um, the, the, yeah, consensus, well, from a government point of view, consensus is the good thing because government should be slow. From that kind of a point of view, like societal changes, keeping up with technology and people saying, well, maybe we need to not like develop AI or maybe we, we need to like hold back on robots and that kind of stuff because we're not ready for that yet. Like that type of change, it cannot be consensus driven. That needs to be driven by thought leaders. Whereas things like government needs to be driven by people who are being intentionally slow and deliberative and thinking about deeper issues, I think. Well, that's certainly how our, you know, at least one idea about how our system was designed here. And that's why you have your checks and balances. We talked about this a little bit on the last show, for sure. Um, speaking of these uh, deeper issues, there's not really a good segue into this, I don't think. Um, and I would know I'm a professional, so if I could come up with a good segue, I would have already done it. <laughs> um but I, I think there there's some stuff that we need to talk about or that I wanted to talk about anyway and kind of what's been happening over the last few weeks that we've seen. Obviously, um, we're recording this um, on the day that Jeff Sessions has finally said he's going to recuse himself from any investigations into the Trump campaign, which is an, a very, very narrow recusal. Uh, but I don't expect that we've seen the end of that. But you know, this comes, we also heard uh, the news today that another Jewish cemetery was vandalized in New York. This is the third case in two weeks. Um, there are reports of a fourth mosque being burned, which is the fourth one in seven weeks. Um, and so we have this, you know, the these these uh, acts, these anti-Muslim uh, and anti-Semitic acts that continue to happen. Um, and are happening at a much higher clip than we've pretty much ever seen. Um, so, you know, you have the the Southern Poverty Law Center saying we've never seen anything like this in the past. Um, the the rate of these types of attacks, obviously, you have the this uh, you know the headstones, you know, 100 at one cemetery, 150 at another cemetery, being uh, knocked over and clearly in an you know, an attempt to kind of desecrate the graves there. And, um, you know, I'm just thinking, like, how how should we talk about this, right? Clearly, uh, a lot of people want the Trump administration to uh, do more, to speak out and to say more. Um, the Trump administration has not shown a willingness to do that. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I guess it seems to me that it's one thing to say, oh, well, Donald Trump is anti-Semitic, and I don't, there's not very many people making that claim. Uh, but he doesn't. He's certainly not going out of his way to um, condemn these anti-Semitic and anti-Muslim acts. Uh, he certainly has surrounded himself with people that uh, would appear to harbor some of these views. And I also think it's interesting, and to me this is actually the, the scarier part, um, not whether Trump makes a speech about it or not, um, but the the way in which groups have been emboldened since his election, right? So you see David Duke, the former Grand Wizard of the KKK, 
um, praising you know, pretty much everything that's coming out of the the Trump administration right now, which is usually maybe that's not the person that you want to be praising the things that you're doing. Um, and you see consistently white nationalist groups that are that are seeing uh, the statements that are being made, the actions that are being taken or not taken by the Trump administration as a tacit approval of their views. And so that to me is kind of what's scarier is, is how some of these groups have been emboldened um, since Trump's election. Well, and, and I think the I don't know. I, I'm I'm trying to be careful here in how I say this. <laughs> yeah. I I think the reluctance to call people out in, in the scope of allowing people free speech is a is a real problem we have. You know, like, well, yeah, they're going to say that they're going to be honest. That's how they feel, and that's okay because we're America, and, and you know, people can say what they want. Like people can put a Confederate flag on the back of their truck or they can put a, you know, a racist symbol or whatever, like on the back of their truck. And that's cool. But I'm not, I'm not saying that's cool. I'm channeling that. It's allowed. Right. Uh, But how does that impact like, like you as president, like how do you, stand in front of the country and say, well, you know, maybe we should consider this. I don't know. I I think the way that Obama handled the race issue as president, as a first, you know, African-American president was such a, such a game changer in in ways that we didn't comprehend then. And we still don't comprehend now. And I don't think we will comprehend for a long time that, that going from Obama to Trump is like, like a weird huge transition moment and 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 as a, as a nation we're still trying to figure that out because it's such a like a you know from here to there kind of a thing now i'm not saying trump is a racist or whatever but you know <laughs> there, there's a lot of issues there and it's like wow there's there's that interplay between those two things and and uh i think the, the country is trying to figure that out as a whole, like what's acceptable, what's not, what's not acceptable, um, what what can you make public, what do you keep private, those sorts of things. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I think that's right. Um, I mean, you know, the one of the things that's interesting in in these conversations is the speed at which people recoil to being labeled, you know, a racist or an anti semite. Um. Right, and that's right. That's what Donald Trump said. So it was this kind of amazing scene at a press conference where um, a, a guy from a Jewish paper, I think it was an Orthodox paper, uh, who himself was Orthodox, saying, "You know, hey, I have a question. Like, we certainly don't think you're anti-Semitic, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, some people are." Um, you know, saying like, what, you know, why don't you speak out a little bit more? And he cuts the guy off, tells him to, you know, sit down and be quiet. And the first thing he says is, I'm the least anti-Semitic person you'll ever meet. And, you know, number two, racist. I, I'm not racist. And 
and just kind of goes on from there. So he was like, you know, it's like, how could you have the gall to say, right? So it's as if the absolute worst thing that someone could do would be to call you an anti-Semite or to call you a racist, um, which is, of course, in a lot of ways, super ironic coming from Trump, who, you know, had you know for a long time bashed Democrats or liberals for you know being too PC and saying I'm not PC and I just say things like they are except he doesn't like certain things being said about him doesn't like a lot of things being said about him so on the one one hand we have this really interesting thing right where it's you know the top of the of the pedestal of bad things you can say to someone is to call them a racist or an anti-semite but then when we have actual um, you know, activities happening that are anti-Semitic or racist or anti-Muslim, then it's kind of largely radio silence from a lot of these same people. And, you know, I mean, we talked about this a long time ago with the first logo that the Trump-Pence campaign put out, which bore a distinct resemblance to uh, a logo of a white nationalist group. Does it mean that they copied it? Absolutely not. Does it mean that it was an intentional dog whistle to white nationalists? Absolutely not. But at a certain point, right? You know, I was thinking about this today with the with the sessions thing and with you know just the insane number of people in the Trump campaign that have come out with ties to uh, Russia. One thing my grandfather always said is that where there's smoke, there's fire. And at a certain point, we have to say this is no longer. That was your grandfather. Yes. Oh, cool. Okay, I was wondering where that came from. So. <laughs> Nobody else's <laughs> grandfather said yeah, that. Yeah, totally. fine. Um, right, but you know, at a certain point, you have to say this isn't a coincidence anymore. And so, yeah. So I mean, but I'm curious, like, you know, I'm trying to figure out how do we handle this kind of, um, you know, as a public. And certainly, we've decided in the past that we value free speech, but we're completely acceptable. We can we think it's completely acceptable to put limits on that. And we do regularly, right? Just like with religious freedom, we can we regularly put limits on um, the amount of freedom we will allow you in your religion, uh, based on what we as a as a as a group as a nation. Though this is often done maybe by lawmakers or by judges, but deemed to be acceptable. And so it's not like it's not like we never put any limits on speech. Right. So. Um, you know, how do we make that decision? And, you know, what would happen if we went the way of Germany, for instance, and, you know, started, you know, outlawing um, certain symbols or certain speeches? Well, I, uh, I mean, I don't, know if- I don't know if that's the way to go. I don't personally think it's the way to go. But, right, how do we, so how do we handle this? Because um, certainly what we've seen is we've seen a lot of these groups be um, drastically emboldened since the Trump election, right? And you and I have been talking about this in a number of different scenarios lately where there's this idea of, well, Trump speaks his mind and it's okay for me to speak my mind too. Uh, it just so happens that, you know, the mind that you're speaking is one that is maybe, you know, extremely racist, extremely anti-Semitic, extremely uh, anti-women, uh, whatever it is. And so a lot of people have just, you know, feel like they have license to, essentially just be a jerk um and i don't yeah, know I mean, how do we it, handle that it's that, it's that four square or not four jesus four chan <laughs> yeah. damn four square it's that four chan idea of of 
you know, like anything you say is is okay because um, it it's freedom of, of, of expression, right? Um, and that's not true. You know, like freedom of speech does not mean that people can't call you a jerk or kick you off of Twitter or cancel your Disney contract. Like that's protection from the government from <laughs> saying that. Hey, we're we're not going to prosecute you for saying these things, right. but um, th- there's a real big disconnect there. And yes, there's a blowback, but but why is there a blowback? What I mean, like, why do you think, Thomas, that there's a blowback by white men, young white men, middle-aged white men, your age, thirty-one, my age, thirty-eight, like, and much younger? If I'm looking at at, at four channel, four square, why why is there such a, a a, a reactionary event at, at this point is it is it because we had a black president i don't think so um i think yeah i think the problem is definitely those six-year-olds playing foursquare um so the app asshole <laughs> um i don't i mean i, I don't have a, a single answer uh, i i do think that uh, having a black president plays into it uh, quite significantly, and um, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, a lot of it seems pretty obvious. A lot of these people feel like they've lost their country because to them, their country was ruled by white men, and nobody else had the rights that they had, and nobody else had the power that they had. And now people are starting to get that in very minor ways, I might add. Um, and they view equality as a zero-sum game, it's, right? So the the idea, I guess, in their minds is that if someone else gets the rights that I have, then that somehow impinges my rights, but it doesn't. Um, so, I mean, I, I think that, that there is a, right, we talked about this last time, right, with nostalgia, that there there's obviously a, a strong uh, pull there, but you know, some of it is very real. And that um, in some ways, though not enough, in some ways, uh, white men don't have the power that they used to. And they view this, you know, some of them view this as um, a negative thing, right? An unacceptable loss. Um, I don't. I mean, I I think that's ridiculous. but so I think that I think that's one part of it. Uh, I think a lot of people are just a lot of people have had this kind of pent up anger um, that I think got uh, maybe more deeply entrenched during the Obama years. Um, I think a significant portion of that was um, just against Obama, right? I mean. Sure, there's so, a lot. So you, there's a lot that was that was done against him. That was okay. He was a Democrat, uh, but there's a lo- also a lot that was done against him that I don't think there's any way you explain it other than racial animus. Yeah. So you think it was. Yeah, I just think, I just saying. I think that's a very that's a very real aspect that we can't overlook. Yeah. Do you, Do you think it was racism, or do you think it was? Just kind of a like a, a party delineation. 
So I, I think you had a couple things come together at once, right? One, you you had um, you know Obama, who's a black man. Um, you also simultaneously to that had Republicans in Congress saying we're going to be completely obstructive, you know, obstructionist here, and and they were, and it was you know in a in a lot of respects a fairly successful tactic, you know, politically anyway. Um, so you had those two coming together. Whether they made that decision because Obama was black or whatever, I don't know. Um, but you know, a, a lot of people definitely felt like Obama was, you know, it, it, taking over and you know just out of control with his power. Um, and we talked about this too, right? That in some ways, <laughs> the ways in which Obama expanded the powers of the executive branch have allowed Trump to do some of the things that he's done. So that's uh, we can definitely talk about that, but. So I think you have that, but you also have, right, there is, um, you know, the commentator on CNN, Van Jones, said, uh, I think it was on election night. Was it election night? Or was it, yeah, I think it was, that this was a white lash, right? Um, it's kind of a backlash by white people against uh, having a black president. And I, I definitely think there's something to that. But I also think that if you look at the reasons that I, largely, that I think Trump won, Besides, you know, whatever may have happened with Russia and all of that kind of stuff. And yes, he lost the popular vote. But the reasons a lot of people did vote for him, right? His main message was he came out of the gate uh, anti-Mexican, anti-immigrant, you know, essentially anti-black and brown people, right? I mean, his pitch to black people in this country was your lives suck now. What do you got to lose? You should vote for me, right? Um Every, he can only ever, um, every time he talks about black people, he talks about the inner cities, right? So, like, so he, he has this kind of idea that I, I think lines up with the ideas that a lot of white people have about what it means to be an immigrant or what it means to be a black person uh, or what it means to be a Muslim. And so um, I don't think we can divorce his rhetoric from why people voted for him, right? So I just... Um, I mean, it's, you know, it's tough and we've heard, I mean, God, we've seen what a million stories about, you know, Trump voters from people in the press, you know, you got to get to know these people and uh, that's fine. I know a lot of those people, um, but I also still think there are consequences and there are responsibilities to um, how you perform your duties as a citizen. And I think that if you voted for him, you have to answer for his actions. And if you don't agree with his actions, you have to be some of the loudest people standing up to say that this is wrong. And when I see people that say, oh, I voted for him, but I'm not a racist. Well, I'm not saying that you're a racist. But if you're saying I voted for him because of his tax policy or because of you know whatever he wanted to do to Obamacare, uh, but then when he is doing all of these other things that are um, you know, pretty horrible and you know, unconstitutional, uh, if you're not standing up you know, protesting that, then... What grounds do I have to believe that the the racially charged aspects of his rhetoric didn't also appeal to you? Okay, so uh, I'm going to push back on that. Yeah. So at, at what point when people who voted for Obama or supported Obama, when he said, I'm going to close Guantanamo, and he didn't do that, or I'm, I'm going to reduce the number of drone strikes, and he didn't do that, I'm going to get us out of Syria, and he didn't do that, and he suggested you know more troops. Like he, you know, President Obama did the exact same thing on, in that front. And, you know, 
I didn't see a whole lot of Democrats saying, well, we stand against President Obama, um, you know, sending more troops into Syria or saying that, you know, Guantanamo is okay. Right. Well, certainly. I mean, there were some. Um, yeah, but I mean, there, but they were, were not enough. No, friends, I know. Right? I, agree, I agree completely. So, but, but, but now we're, we're asking all Republicans to stand up and say, no, Trump's wrong about immigration. I, I would. OK, there's two things I would say. One thing is that I, I completely agree that Democrats were by and large um, were not uh, hard enough on Obama as they should have been. I, I think a lot were. Uh, but particularly with drone strikes, particularly with the increase in deportations, right? Uh, a lot of these things that just kind of got ignored because we had a Democrat in the White House. Uh, and, I, and I think that's wrong. And I think pointing out the hypocrisy there is a completely appropriate thing to do. My second point would be, I, I think some of the things that, that Trump has done are of a different kind than the things that Obama was doing. And they merit um, more pushback um, or they should they should be called there they should kind of serve as calls to action a lot quicker than some of the other things right uh, it, you could you could easily have been a Democrat during the Obama years and not really known much about uh, the increase in deportations or uh, the number of people that were being killed in drone strikes in particular, uh, you know, and especially the number of um, civilians being killed in drone strikes that were um, you know, given the okay by the Obama administration. And to some degree, that's a fault of our press. Um, some people were reporting it, but it's obviously not widely reported. Uh, there's not much that's happening in the Trump administration right now that that you can tell me most people don't know about, right? I mean, it, it is all over, right? So with the Muslim ban and things like that, it's, you can't say like, well, I didn't know that he was doing that. And so it's there in front of you. And so you, you know, you have to make a decision about it and you have to take a stand one way or the other. And, you know, so, so what do you do in that situation? And I, and I do think that um, it puts Republicans in a, in a difficult situation uh, for sure. A lot of them, but, I mean, we're all in a difficult situation. So I don't know. I mean, it's not like, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I voted for Hillary, but I was very much against her. You know, I, I, I think she's way too hawkish. Um, and I talked about that. So, I mean, I don't I don't know. Like, it's, it's definitely hard because we are very, we're, you know, we, we're becoming more and more partisan. Um, it's hard for a lot of people to speak against people in their in their party, but I think we're seeing more of it now with Democrats um, on the left, um, with a lot of movements like Justice Democrats and groups like that, uh, with Indivisible and groups like that saying, um, you know, essentially pulling like Tea Party tactics um, with Democratic uh, representatives. So we are seeing some of it now, even though you know, Democrats aren't in power, they're still doing it with their representatives. Um, so I don't know, but I, I do think it's, I think a lot of, I think I think some of the things that are happening in the Trump campaign right now, or the Trump administration, sorry, um, are of a different kind than what was happening during the, during the Obama administration. Hmm. I'd like to get a W. Travis McMacken, McMacken. I'm going to say his name wrong again. 
Um, we had this discussion. Friend of the show, uh, his viewpoint on this because I know he's a big Carl Carl Bart fan since he's a you know big Calvinist and you, you Calvinist people are all the same. <laughs> but but Carl Bart, you know, says like. No one can be a pacifist, not in principle, but only in practice. Uh, but let everyone consider very carefully whether being called to discipleship, it is possible to avoid or permissible to neglect becoming a practical pacifist. So, like, there's this tension between, like, Bart's allowance for military action and, and critical appreciation for pacifism and that that sort of you know, in, inherent Christian, like, Niebuhr-esque, like, do, are we, are we willing to allow for this because it's a good fight type of thing? Or do we say Guantanamo was bad because we're, we're inflicting harm on people, you know, viewpoint. And I think Obama was certainly caught up in that. Um, yeah, but Obama, like, he also, like, he subscribed to a just war theory, which I don't subscribe to. Right, right. I, yeah. I just fundamentally and, and many Democrats with it. do, and, and right, many, yeah. I think I would say like you know Democratic Christians do, uh, not not the German version, but right. <laughs> so, well, you know, I, I I don't know from from me from a like a, a thinking religion point of view, like, can you subscribe to a just war theory? Like, is there Who? is there like, is there a companion to atonement for for just war theory? What do you mean? Is there a companion to atonement? You're like, is there an atonement theory that lines up with that would you know align itself well with a just war theory? Yes. Uh, I don't know. Maybe Christus Victor. I mean, <laughs> right? I don't know. I mean, that's. Um, <laughs> yeah, let's cross the bridge with our cross on our shields. I mean, um, that's yeah. You know. I mean, no, I, th- I think that's a good question. I, I think. Well, um, I mean, like American Christianity. What do we do? Like, can you? Can you subscribe to that? I mean, Trump says we're going to win more wars. We're, we're going to win wars again. Like, okay, okay, that's great. So what does that mean? Like, are we going to go to more wars? And as American Christians, do we... I mean, I'm saying we, it's in me as a part of that group. Do we subscribe to that? Like, I, I well, thought I we mean, were... Well, I mean, so, so the, the, the simple that. answer is yes. I mean, the vast majority of American Christians, I think, would subscribe to a just war theory. Um, can you or not? I, I I don't. I mean, yeah, sure, right. I mean, we obviously know how classification works, and and I don't typically try to get into the game of saying you can't call yourself a Christian if you dot dot dot. Uh, I've been on the other end of that way too many times to count. Um, but you know, it's it's not something that I subscribe to because um, I I just because I I think right. Okay, here's what I think. All right, the the scene. Have you seen Kingdom of Heaven, the movie? Um, I'm not. Yeah. It's a fantastic movie. I'll, I'll have to I'll pull it up, and, and I can't think about who's in it right now. Um, but so you have this movie. Um, so Ridley Scott uh, produced it. You've got Liam Neeson in it. Uh, Orlando Bloom is the is the star of it. Edward Norton is in it as well. Uh, and it's about the Crusades during the 12th century. And it's basically you have the Christian army go up against uh, Salah Adin and a Muslim army. And there's this great scene in it 
when I and I you know show this in class sometimes where they're I mean they're prepared for battle right they're there and they're looking out on the Muslim army and they're going to go down and and or not, this might have actually been like a caravan it wasn't even you know an armed group they're going they're going to go attack this caravan and looking around and look at the priest and and the priest looks around and it was not like they're going to change their mind it's that the priest says God wills it right and then they. Uh, take off and they go into battle and they overtake this caravan, this Muslim caravan. And and so to me, and I know that, you know, people would say, oh, well, you can't, you know, say that you can't equate that with just war theory. But in, in a lot of ways, um, I think that's that's what happens, right, is that uh, religion is co-opted as a justification for engaging in something we just want to engage in anyway. And... Um, I have a problem with that, you know. I'd, I'd, I much more agree with the Bob Dylan perspective, right? If God, and what's you know, the, uh, God on our side, right? And so the yeah. last, the yeah. last stanza with God on our side is, if God's on our side, He'll stop the next war. Um, so, yeah, the Bob Dylan version of that during the um, MTV Unplugged sessions have you heard that no ah okay so uh, if you're not listening put this in the show notes if you're not listening go to uh the the youtubes look up bob dylan unplugged god on our side fantastic so much better than the original version anyway um okay so it's a the whole just war theory is such a such a I don't know, normative Christian idea anyway, right? I mean, or, or Muslim or, you know, whatever. Like, like, there's no, there's no such thing as a just war. Right. Well, I mean, that, that's what I would say. But the the people who subscribe to just war theory would, would say there is. I've, I've, a friend of mine works on a comparative uh, Muslim uh, Christian ethics. And uh, if I'd known we were going to talk about just war theory tonight, I would have uh, tried to get him to come talk to us about it uh, because you know, he'll know it obviously a lot better than probably either of us. But um, the whole idea behind the just war theory is that some wars, right, it's not, it's not uh, your first choice. Uh, it's not maybe the best option, but that some wars are indeed just. And um, I don't know. I mean, I, I can't. I just can't bring myself to to subscribe to that, um, particularly because of what I think it does, uh, and how I think it uh, uses uh, religion to justify um, what we're just gonna do anyway. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's kind of the point. Like, it's it's the same thing. Like. Nah, you're waiting for God to tell you to do something that you're going to do regardless. Like, I really want to go out and buy these Apple AirPods that cost me a hundred extra bucks on eBay. But you know what? I'm, I don't want to wait till April. So if I go ahead and get them now, right. I can experience that and, and brag on, you know, that on Instagram. But it's, it's just because I have a root. That's the same thing, right? Maybe. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, you know, I'm thinking about, I don't know, right? So it's just kind of hard to, I mean, right? There are difficulties here, right? How do you how do you run an empire? We're thinking about Constantine once Christianity kind of you know post Constantine takes over the Roman Empire. Uh, how do you run an empire and 
not figure out some way to uh, legitimize the war that you're inevitably going to be engaged in. All right, so it's kind of necessary in, in, in a lot of ways, and I can understand that. Um, but it's, yeah, I just, I can't. Yeah. You can't what? I just can't personally uh, get myself to that point. To what point? To say that, um, you know, it, it, that it's just and that it will be seen as just in God's eyes, right? Which is, you know, the root of this, that it will be seen as just in God's eyes for us to um, go to war in this place. I may think that this war is a war that needs to be fought, um, but I'm not going to, you know, I, I don't know, use God as a scapegoat there, right? Use God as my justification. Well, God, you know, God would understand this war to be just, so therefore we can fight this war. Um, instead, I would be, you know, maybe inclined to say, I think this war needs to be fought, um, and, you know, I would maybe think that God would not want this war to be fought, but here we are, and we're going to do it anyway. <laughs> right? I mean, I don't know. I just, I, you know, I just think that it's just another example to me of the ways in which we often project uh, ourselves, right? We often anthropomorphize our deities, right? Well, so we project uh, our uh, own understandings and our own desires onto our deities in a way to make us feel better about ourselves. Do you think that's being reflected in how people are, like like the Jewish uh, desecrations, where, you know, cemeteries and uh, you know the four mosques that have been burned? Like, do you think that's a, a similar vein, like here in the U.S., of how people are, are channeling kind of frustrations or whatever? And, and I mean, I'm 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 trying to I don't know tie those two together, but not really, but. Just, just see if there's a, a threat there. I mean, I certainly do think that for uh, some segment of the population, um, the way that they understand their faith is tied to um, negative views about others. And, right, I mean, there is, right, I mean, it's not why do we, I was going to say, why do we have anti-Semitism? It's not why we have anti-Semitism, but uh, we can go back all the way to what the gospel of Matthew and pull out things that appear to be pretty anti-Semitic, right? With it's so we get these just early charges of, you know, the Jews killed Jesus. And so they killed, they killed Jesus. So they deserve to die. Um, it's not a far step for a lot of people to go. Um, so, and then, of course, you get justifications, right, with anti-Muslim um, violence. You get justifications about, oh, well, you know, Muhammad, you know, engaged in war and, you know, did these horrible things. And, you know, there's, a, I pulled a couple of verses out of the Quran, so, that I've never read, but, you know, I, some preacher told me about them, so they must all be horrible people that want to, you know, kill all the Christians, so we're going to kill them first, because our God is stronger than theirs, or something like that, right? Um, yeah, so I, I think for a lot of people, it, they're, it is tied to that, right? I mean, it's, you know, we do very much often kind of intermingle uh, our view of the world with how we understand the, you know, our deity views the world um, in a way that's often, I, th I think, hard for a lot of people to separate, right? I mean, and necessarily, right? It's, it's going to have to be. 
uh, that to some degree, right? All, all talk that you can do about any talk that you can engage in about some kind of deity is going to be um, necessarily limited to your realm of understanding, for sure. Yeah, but I mean, I I guess a question is like that understanding and and that expression. How, how do we balance that between the understanding of uh, sort of a I don't know a, a make a, a make America great again culture balanced with the needs and and the realities of of minority cultures within that you know whether it's a synagogue or a mosque or a small christian group that might be a little different than you know quote mainstream 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 <laughs> mainstream christianity um you know it, the, the, there's such a focus right now on making america great again and there's such a focus on kind of the, the backlash from minority groups and and the fringe groups and, and to focusing on, you know, whatever we're trying to conceive of as America. Um, I, I just wondered, like, how much that's playing into all of these incredible and terrible uh, attacks we're seeing on, on things like Jewish cemeteries and, and you know, the what, what the sub, uh, Southern Law uh, Poverty Center is reporting as far as... Uh, you know, hate crimes that are, that are coming out in the last few weeks, last few days, even. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I, I, I don't know how you separate them, particularly in this country's history, right? Um, you know, our country has long invoked God um, for absolutely heinous things, right? I mean, that's right. We have manifest destiny that way, and um, so. Yeah, I don't think that you can and, and that you can separate those things. Um, you know, we have a very, um, I don't know. I mean, I'm on the one hand, I want to call it like a, you know, like American Christianity is a tainted Christianity. But at, at the same time, I don't think it's any more tainted than any other version of Christianity. Um, you know, we're all just kind of making it up as we go along anyway. But um, and you can't deny that interpretations of Christianity have uh, directly led to uh, many of the most heinous things that our country has been involved in. And I think that remains true today with the attacks that we're seeing on uh, synagogues and on Jewish cemeteries, right? There was, I, I saw yesterday, there was a, there was a, a synagogue that, you know, somebody had, uh, shot through one of the windows. Luckily, nobody was there when it happened, right? So uh, all of these types of things that are happening, um, yes, there's been an uptick recently since the election, and a number of these groups have felt emboldened in a way that we've not seen in a really long time. But this is a fundamentally American story. It, it is, but, I mean, do, do you feel like those were people that felt emboldened because of Trump or, or the circumstance, or is that something that, I don't know, has sort of always happened and we just now give it attention. 
Well, so so okay, so it's happened, but you know, I, I, this is where I would um, lean on groups like the ACLU, the Southern Poverty Law Center, with their Hate Watch and other things like that. Uh, groups that day in and day out track this. Um, it's certainly been happening for a long time. And, and we've got a link in the show notes down there to the Southern Poverty Law Center's hate map. Um, and one of the things that you'll see on there is, you know, they're tracking these groups and they show an increase, you know, a, 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 you know an uptick in, in these groups. You see, uh, you know, a little uptick uh, after 2008, you know, kind of steadily rising. It kind of tops out in 2010, 2011, 2012, drops down again, and then it begins to significantly increase again in 2015 and 2016. Uh, so you, we see the trend going up, but we also see particularly like anti-Muslim groups, uh, Southern Poverty Law Center seeing a 197% increase in the number of anti-Muslim hate groups since 2015. Right, so we're we're seeing increases now. Uh, we're seeing activity now, like we've not, you know, maybe ever seen or seen in a very long time. Um, and there's just simply no way to not tie this to Trump's election, where people are feeling emboldened, um, and and certainly they feel like they've lost something. And we can debate whether they actually have or not. Uh, in a lot of cases, uh, they've not lost. Um, uh, you know, where they're in a lot better place than a lot of other people still are. Um, but so, I mean, I, I do think this is this is um, you know, there's an emboldening that's happened because of Trump's election and because of his rhetoric. Um, and you know, a lot of people want to reach back to their ideas or maybe even the reality of how things used to be. And for them, they think life was better then. And for some of them, life may have been better then. Um, but that's where, like you were saying about tech, right? Where it, there are some things where we we shouldn't wait for consensus on. Uh, we shouldn't just be guided by consensus. We have to allow. Like this is what we have leaders for. You know, thought leaders right. in the tech world and and thought leaders in the political world and in the religious world. Um, right. This is why you don't ever, in my opinion, ever put the rights of a minority up to a majority vote because they are almost always going to be voted down. Yep, exactly. And so, yeah, I mean, I I think that um, we have responsibilities. Even even if we see this trend, we have we have our leaders have certain responsibilities. But but to me, the trend is troubling, right? Um, because it's hard to put the cat back in the bag. Uh, 